First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to take a break from our series that we've been in in John and speak directly to the graduates from a text. And I suspect that the subject that I've chosen and the text that I've chosen is out of step, really, with what you will hear at most graduation gatherings that you will be in this season The text that is summarized in verse 5 of our text that we read this morning, if you want to look there with me for just a moment, that says this and admonishes this. Likewise, you who are younger, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. You're probably not going to hear a lot about the promises of humility at graduation, but that's what I want to tell you about. The promises from this text, the promises that God gives us of humility. There's a reason why you won't hear it much in our culture and in our graduation exercises, and one person summarizes it this way. They say, humility is not a popular human trait in the modern world. It is not touted in the talk shows or celebrated in the valedictorian speeches or commanded in diversity seminars or listed with core values. And if you go to the massive self-help section of the major bookstores, you won't find books on humility. And that's true. The air that we breathe today in our culture, the think-of-yourself-more world we've become accustomed to, is hostile, hostile toward humility. I've said this before, but I believe it, so I think it bears stating again. If if God tarries, if Christ tarries, doesn't return and set up his kingdom, I think generations will look back on our generation. And one of the ways that they will describe our generation, our time, is that we were constantly taking our temperature. We were constantly taking our temperature Constantly asking the question, how does this affect me? And running everything in life in a general way through ourselves first. We live in that kind of a place. And the question we would ask is, is why is it so? And why is humility um, not applauded in our culture today? Why, why is there an absence of it in the culture that we're in? Um, To quote another, they would say the basic reason for this is not hard to find because humility can only survive, humility can only survive in the presence of God. 
When God goes, humility goes with it. I think that's right. I think that's a true judgment. Pride, you see, contends for the supremacy with God. The root of pride, which is the opposite of humility, is an attempt to elevate ourselves above God. And so God can't exist in a culture of pride. You, you, he, doesn't, he doesn't exist there in the minds of people. Humility, therefore, I believe, is the defining mark of the Christian, who by definition is one whose life is a, pl- in which, is a life in which God is applauded. In this text this morning, there are three different times where this particular writer admonish, admonishes us to be humble. Let, look at them with me. In, in chapter 5, in verse, first part of that verse, we already read part of it. It says, likewise, you who are younger, I didn't read this part of it. It says, be subject to the elders. Talking about the leaders of the church here in this context of this particular chapter in which Peter is writing. But to be subject means to be in submission, to be humble, be be in humility toward your leaders, toward those over you. And then it goes on and says uh, later in that text, clothe yourselves with all humility toward one another. Second time, it talks about humility. And then finally it said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So this text three times admonishes young people, particularly young people, to be humble. Not just young people, but in this case, they certainly are included specifically. So my, my goal this morning, my, my attempt is to admonish you as young people and the broader con- congregation as well. To admonish you as graduates to live a life in which God is applauded by your life, which means to live a life of humility, to learn what that is and to live it out because I do believe with all of my heart that 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 is the life in which God is applauded. And I hope that the goal of your life, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do is to live for his glory. Live in such a way that you make much of God. The text today gives four incentives for that. And that's what I want to focus on just briefly here this morning. We're not going to speak long, but four incentives for doing that. Four promises, if you will, of this text for the one who does pursue a life of humility. I think they're here. I think they're in the heart of this text. The first one is in verse 5. If you look there, we're in, in part B of that, where it says very plainly that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. That's, that's an incentive, I hope, for you to live a life of humility, to not be at odds with God, to not be on the opposite side of the playing field of God. That's a huge incentive, I hope, <clears throat> this morning, to understand that whenever pride raises its head in our lives, we are trying to elevate ourselves to a place above God And therefore, get in opposition to him because God will not share his glory with another. He can't share his glory with another. And so when we try to take part of his glory, we become at odds with him. Now, the the ultimate sense in which that happens 
is to live a life of unbelief, to live a life outside of, of, of all that he offers us in Christ, to reject the gospel, to reject him, and to reject, in essence, what we're rejecting when we reject the gospel and the provision of his son, Jesus Christ, for us, and we don't choose to embrace that and, and make that a treasure in our lives and follow after him, what, in essence, we're doing in all of that is we're spurning his glory. The essence of all sin, the essence of and bottom place for all sin is a text in Romans chapter 1 where it says that they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. The essence of sin is to not glorify God. My definition of sin, as I've told you, is broad. I think it's biblical. And whenever we don't eat and drink to his glory, we sin. And so the essence of sin is spurning his glory, not valuing his glory, his beauty. And where we see that beauty most fully is in the face of Christ. If if you want to... To, to ask, where do we see that? We see it in Christ. We see it in the provision of Christ. We see it in what we sang this morning in the fact that he took the wrath of all who believe. It was laid on him. And he finished a work so that that wrath would not have to lay on us if we've embraced Christ. And so the ultimate, the ultimate sense in which we live a prideful life is to reject that. Is to reject the glory of God. And exchange it for the glory of another, namely ourselves. And not live under his lordship and not live under his reign and his gracious provision for us in Christ. One person, Jason Meyer, in a book called Killjoys, The Seven Deadly Sins, says this. The collision between the glory of God and the pride of man has two possible crash sites. Hell or the cross. The glory of God and the glory of man has two possible crash sites. We can either crash in the cross and embrace the cross and acknowledge the glory of God above ours or we will crash in hell because God will not let his glory be spurned forever. That's That's the gospel. That's the bad news of the gospel, that our sin must be dealt with. And the wonderful good news of the gospel is that God provided a way that his glory could be upheld and our sin could be forgiven and the penalty of that could fall upon his son. And that's a glorious thing. And it doesn't have to crash It doesn't have to crash in hell, but it can crash in the cross. And so the ultimate humility, the beginning of humility, is that acknowledgement that we have sinned and we have spurned the glory of another and that we look to the provision for that in Jesus Christ. You, You can't do that except with a humble heart. The definition of doing that is humility. You are acknowledging his lordship, you are acknowledging your sin and your failure and looking to his provision and his work for you. That's the glory of the gospel. As I said in that quote, the collision between the glory of God and the pride of man has two possible Christ sites, hell or the cross. That individual goes on to say, in other words, either we will pay for our sins in hell 
or Christ will pay for our sins in the cross. It seems like a choice that's easy to make, doesn't it? And yet many times people choose not to. They, they don't make the right choice. And why? Because humility is hard. Acknowledging our sin and our wrongness and looking to his provision is a work that God has to do and open our eyes to see. It doesn't come easily. It's, it's what the scripture says in the Old Testament, says what is impossible with God or with man is possible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And what is the greatest impossibility for man? It's to humble his heart, but God can do it. And God does it as he opens our eyes to see the glory of God the glory of God and causes us to quit spurning it in the face of Christ. Let me take you to a text that reiterates this a bit quickly. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone, that's the key, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. He will not share his glory with another. So ultimately, all men will be humbled. It's just when. You see, God will humble us ultimately, either by us bowing our knee now or later. Because God can't share his glory. It says this, For the Lord of hosts has a day against that all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Now, that's what the scripture says. That's what the end entails. But the wonderful promise that we have, the wonderful incentive of humility and living a life as humility is that God will not forever oppose us in that sense. But he he is grace to the humble. That's the second incentive that we see today. The second incentive that we have for humility is that That while nothing is worse, there's nothing in all of life that is worse than opposing an infinitely powerful and holy God. And at the same time, there's nothing better than having that same infinite and holy God on our side and knowing it. And that's what the cross declares. That's what, for all that have taken refuge in the cross, it declares to us that God will, in fact, not be against us, but for us. You see, that's why the key is the cross and what we do with the cross and how we handle the cross. In fact, the cross speaks to those who've taken refuge in it that God is now for them and will actually work for them. One of the banners we have had over our our ministry here at Richland for a number of years is out of the book of Isaiah a text out of there that says, no ear has perceived nor eye has seen any God like our God. Who does what? Who acts, which I think can be translated works as well with no damage to the text. Who acts or works on behalf of those who, what? Wait for him who humble themselves before him, who are willing to look to him to do a work in their lives. 
And it begins with at the cross. It begins the work of justifying them and removing their sin as they repent of that sin. But he continues to work. He continues to be for them. He continues to work on their behalf. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, blessed are the humble. He extends grace. The text that we read here in in chapter 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace. Grace to the humble. Not opposition, but grace. Strength. And, and another thing that we have said for a long time here is, what what is that grace? What is it? It is, it is a tangible strength. It is certainly... A, a, more than that, it's grace in the sense that he offers grace to us and, and doesn't, doesn't bring wrath to us, but it also is a, is a present strength he gives to us. It's, it's not just a status that we have of grace, but God extends grace to his people, a strength to live out the Christian life, a strength to live in humility all of our days, a strength to eat or drink or whatever we do to the, Glory of God. And know that if that's the intent of our heart, if that's where we want to go, if that's the way our, our spirit is leading us in humility to live for his glory and not ours, that he, in fact, will give us all the grace, all the strength we do in every circumstance, in every day, to do it for his glory. Whatever it is, whatever he calls us to do, whether it is in good times or hard times, he will extend grace. Now, thirdly, first of all, an incentive is if you don't, he opposes you. Second incentive, but if you do, he gives grace to you. Not opposition, but grace as you humble yourself. The promise that, that he will give you strength. The promise that I claimed this morning as I prepared to come here. God, give me strength. Work on my behalf. Help me to do what I need to do here this morning as I minister before you. We can trust that God will, in fact, do that. He's promised to do that. He's promised not to try to undermine us. He's promised not to try to trip me up here this morning somehow. He won't do that to his people. And then thirdly, the the promise is that in due time, in due season, the text says, in proper time, he will exalt you. He will exalt you. Ultimate, he will exalt his people. He will vindicate his people. Second Timothy tells us this. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The idea that his people will reign with him. Certainly in this age, in this day, in this life, for a momentary time, we face the brokenness of life and it comes against us. And in the midst of that brokenness, God extends grace. He gives us strength to live for his glory in the brokenness. But one day, the scripture says, he will exalt his people. He will reward his people. And that's the promise of humility, that we will inherit Eternal life that, as we're studying in my Sunday school class about heaven, that one day we will live on a renewed earth. The heavens and earth will come together and we will live in resurrected bodies on a resurrected and renewed earth where there's no sin and God exalts his people for all eternity. That's the promise for the humble. That's the promise for those who have bowed their knee to the cross. And then fourthly, 
Fourthly, look at verse 6. There's, a, there's an antidote, I think, an antidote in humbling ourselves for anxiety. Look at what the text says. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's point three. But then it goes on just right away and says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So you could, you could say, and I think not do damage to the text, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him, he will exalt you and he will care for your anxiety. He will help you to come against your anxieties. And part of the fruit of true humility and understanding what it is and how it looks and how it operates is it is an antidote to anxiety. Because I think undue worry, undue worry, undue concern at the root is a form of pride. There's a sense in which we are saying to God, I'm not confident of your goodness. I'm not confident in your promise. I'm not confident that you, in fact, will extend grace to the humble. I'm not confident, in fact, that you can take better care of me than I can. And you see, anxiety in some ways can be at the root an attempt that we will try to take the reins and we will try to take better care of ourselves than God can. And so pride begins to enter into the reason why we want to unduly be anxious about things in our lives. And when we begin to understand humility and humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and, and begin to understand that he no longer opposes us, he's not against us, and he is for us and wants to extend grace to us, and the more we meditate on that and look at that and focus on that, I think we begin to see that it's an antidote to anxiety. Look with me at another text in First Peter chapter 4. This whole chapter of First Peter is written to a church that's suffering persecution, to a church that's having some real difficulty being pressed in upon it. And so we read down in verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, and they were suffering. They were physically suffering persecution in this church. What's the antidote to that? Because what can happen when you're feeling that, when you're feeling that pressure, whether from the outside or just from the brokenness of the age, the fact that we live in a world that is broken and our, our health becomes broken at times, relationships get broken at times in that brokenness. And you have a temptation in all of that, whether that pressure is coming from the outside or from the inside or just from being in a broken world. You have a temptation to become anxious in that suffering. And so what's the antidote? The antidote here in the text says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to who? To a faithful creator. To a faithful creator. To God. Look to him. Humble yourselves and look to him. Cry out to him. Acknowledge that you need him to work on your behalf. That you need him to extend grace on your behalf. Being dependent upon him is, is the thing it's talking about here. And that's an antidote if we, if we live there to come against the anxieties that come in upon us and want to press in upon us in life. So there's four things. No longer is God opposed to us. 
if we humble ourselves. But in fact, he just doesn't become neutral and not being opposed and leave us to ourselves. but he actually joins our side. And he promises to give us grace and he promises to give us help. And then thirdly, it says, and in due time, though we might suffer for a little while in this brokenness and have difficulty, one day he will exalt us. He will exalt us. It talks about Christ in the book of Philippians that he was exalted and he's the firstborn among many brothers. God will exalt his people as well. Certainly not to the level that he exalted Christ, but he will exalt us. He will lift us out of this and we won't be here forever. And, and our humility will reap a benefit one day for us. And then finally, it, it is an antidote right now as we go through this brokenness. It's an antidote to anxiety. When anxiety begins to rise up in your soul, think about it for a minute. Why is it coming? What's causing it? What's fueling it? Am I, am I trying to take charge of something that God said he will take charge of? Am I trying to play God in a subtle kind of way? Am I... Am I pridefully think I can fix this and not entrusting my soul to a faithful creator? Let me admonish you young people this morning and older as well that humility, humility is the answer. And humility begins at the cross. It's a characteristic that... uh, that that needs to be stoked, I think, in our life. And the way we stoke it, the way we allow it to grow and to flourish in our life is focusing on the cross. I want to read to you a portion of the book of Philippians. Just listen. It's texts like this that help us to, to live there and to, to make it be more and more a part of our lives. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the interest, to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He was God, and yet he came fully God, fully man into this world and and emptied himself for a time. And how do you think he was strengthened in that? I think he was strengthened by the promises of his father that he one day would be exalted. The same promise that should strengthen us, that that for a time we, we empty ourselves. We're willing to humble ourselves and to serve one another with the fact that one day God will exalt us. In due time, he will exalt us, but not now, not right in this moment. Again, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, as we look to the cross, that is the ultimate 
humility to bow there. And, and we see the example of the son in bowing to the will of the father and the fact that he was willing to go to the cross. And so the, the way that we stoke humility is the gospel. The way that we continue to feed it in our lives and let it flourish in our lives and think less of ourselves is by looking to the cross and making much of God and his provision in Christ. You will not live a a life of humility except you stay focused there. You will not live a life of humility except these gifts that we give to you are more than tokens. If they're just tokens you won't live a life of humility. But if you get to know the story of these Bibles and the story of a God who did what it says in Philippians in coming and humbling himself and you start to focus there and chew on that and treasure that, it will produce humility in your life and you will find the benefits of the text that we've just read. May it be so for you. May the desire of your heart and of your life be to live a life humbly before your God. We're going to pray for you this morning. We're going to pray in many ways some of those things over you today. And what we'd like to do this morning is we're going to close with a song, O Great God, which talks about God opening our eyes to see the glory of the gospel and then learning to live a life dependent on his grace. And even as we sing it, I pray it will be the the prayer of your hearts as we want our graduates to come and we'd like for you just to kneel at this altar, you that we're recognizing this morning. And then we'd like anyone who's come with you, any family or friends who specifically come with you this morning or from the congregation that you may be asked to come stand behind you, we'd like then for you to come in and just gather around those graduates as we're singing and presenting these gifts to them here this morning. And then behind that, we'd like the elders. If there are elders among us here this morning, if you just come at the back of that, if you would, and just, just stand behind all of that here together and pray as well. We, we would appreciate that this morning. And I think they would appreciate that this morning. So the worship team is going to lead us. And as we begin to sing, as we stand to sing, the children are in the foyer and they're going to need to find you as we sing. And so you kind of watch for them as they come back in. We want them to see this. We want to see the significance of this this morning. Let's stand and worship together as the graduates come this morning. <clears throat> Great God of highest self, occupy my holy heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no voice or sin remain that resists your And purchase me, make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know. 
your love within had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and graduates this morning. Lord, we come before you this morning humbly, as Pastor Ron spoke of, and that we are coming before you with with humble hearts, because we do know who you are. And just pray that um, as we do that, I pray for these graduates as they enter into their next time in their life, um, that they just look to you daily, and even momently, for guidance and wisdom in those things. Guidance with where to go next, or with callings you've placed on their hearts, and just pray that you work work on them in these times, and they're looking to you in that. And uh, it's a time of change, and change is something that's that's hard, but necessary at times, Lord. And we can just be thankful that that you don't change, that we have you as our as our anchor and our refuge and our strength in those times and and, and as it said in First Peter this morning that we can come to you with those anxieties and look to you in those times. And just pray that these graduates are remembering that and and using the the promises in their word in your word to live by. And just pray for the families that are represented here or, or members that aren't here that will have impact on these graduates' lives, Lord, that you're, you're uh, using them and they're looking to you also for guidance and, and how to uh, give their words of wisdom at times and, and decisions that need to be made or in all those things that just that come in this, Lord, that these these families are are uh, coming to you also, Lord, as they 
as they uh, help these graduates at those times. And just, uh, like I said, just help these graduates to look to you in, in, in all things they do. And uh, um, you promise that in the good times and the bad, you are always there, Lord, and that we do rest in that, that there is a rest and peace in knowing that, that you are there, you are our God, and that they are looking at you in those times. And we just pray all these things in your name. Amen. We're going to sing that first verse one more time this morning, just as our benediction. Before we do that, let me invite you to stay with us if you can. We're going to have dinner together and continue to congratulate these graduates around tables and interact with them and their parents. If you didn't come prepared, the meal is prepared. You didn't need to bring anything. It's all there. We'd love to have you stay with us. We're going to be dismissed as we sing that verse one more time, the first verse. That'll be let you graduate stand, and once that's over, you are dismissed to the fellowship hall. So let's stand and sing to our God one more time. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my holy heart. Hold it all and reign supreme. Your sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. When God's peace to the fellowship hall, God bless you.